There are readers and there are listeners, and this one's for the listeners. This is the audio cast of the Red Blue Newsletter for the 13th of September, 2022. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson. And I'm Olaf. I'm pretty excited about this week's skin. Yeah, we've got some juicy stuff. Maybe first order of business, just calling out, you can read this newsletter at news.red.blue. You'll also see we have both this audio cast embedded there, and you'll have the third of our series of Red Blue Expert interviews, this time with Lior Steinberg, who's the co-founder of Humankind. He's an urban planner based in Rotterdam, and we had a long conversation with him about how micromobility is propagating throughout cities, in particular in Europe and the US, but he has a pretty global view, so check that out. So first up, Olaf, you dive into a pretty scary question of what if EVs are not going to scale? It feels like it's, a foregone conclusion that we're all going to be driving electric vehicles, but you point out some interesting stats that perhaps hint the opposite. Yeah, I think what's interesting about EVs is we went from many years where it seemed really hard to get anybody to adopt EVs, and now we've done like a 180 where everybody's convinced that the future is completely electric. Every comic is saying that they won't produce new internal combustion vehicles, but all of that assumes that there is a clear kind of pathway ahead for scaling vehicles. But I think given that we're trying to effectively replicate the current car ownership system just with electric powertrains, hides some really significant barriers that lie ahead. And I don't think we've seriously confronted the risks that the, these obstacles might effectively slow down dramatically the rate at which electric vehicles are adopted, make them unaffordable for most people for a sustained period of time, and therefore push off this kind of vision that we've started seeing as inevitable, that we'll soon all be driving electric vehicles. Are the blockers, first of all? There's two things. The one is the vehicle. It's all the materials going into the battery. There is a limited amount of lithium, cobalt, nickel in the world. It needs to be mined. We need to bring on about 300, more than 300 mines over the next decade or so, scaling up their capacity. And for context, there aren't like 300 mines in existence, and we're doubling that. There's a very small of mines. And beyond that, there are lots of obstacles to building new mines, especially in places like South America, Chile in particular, which holds about half of the world's lithium reserves. There's indigenous protests, there's government interference, nationalization of minerals, slow permitting, et cetera, et cetera. And that, I think, is a structural risk that makes it potentially quite hard to get these minerals out of the ground and into vehicles. And then beyond that, raw materials for vehicles in general are strained because we're living in an inflationary environment, there's lots of strains of the supply chain, in part triggered by the war in Ukraine, and that's just driving up the cost of vehicles overall. So the starting uh, cost or entry point for owning an electric vehicle is being inflated by these shifts, and that's not that doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, as somebody that studied Latin American politics in my undergrad degree, it's fun to see how over the last few months, the Chilean constitutional referendums have suddenly lit up EV and mobility Twitter like you wouldn't have expected before. The second problem is a problem around energy, um, which is that the cost of energy imports, like of electricity bills. I'm in Amsterdam right now, and people here say their utility bills, if they're using gas, have gone up 4x in the last month. And so this increase in cost of Energy, which um, affects the cost of charging an electric vehicle, is in some places bringing the cost of operating an electric vehicle 
in line or slightly above the cost of operating an internal combustion vehicle. So if you've got an electric vehicle, it's supposed to be more, people expect it to be slightly more expensive up front. There's subsidies to, to reduce that initial cost, but then you expect to make the money back over operational time period by using the vehicle and paying less for the energy. But if that second part disappears, then it's very hard to make sense of how people would want to buy electric vehicles if they're significantly more expensive than than the alternative, which is a gas-powered vehicle. It feels like for 20 years, there's been conversation of going towards electric vehicles. And for the better part of 15 years, it's been really clear like what basic batteries would be reliant on from a minerals perspective. And people know how much energy cars consume. So if you're going to do electric, it, one could have forecasted the additional draw on the grid, obviously, one may not have been able to forecast the invasion of Ukraine. But how do you, how is it that as a society, we've ended up running into these cost walls all of a sudden? It, it almost feels frustrating to, to see this happening now. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think markets work in cycles where you have boom and bust and people get excited about something and they don't necessarily think about all the long term implications. And maybe I'm sure there have been people talking about limits in in resources, and every car maker is trying to source supply for their batteries, etc. But I think you have to go so deep to understand that the supply chain for lithium is going to be a constraining factor, and that's going to be upset by a referendum in Chile, and then that is going to make it really hard to bring supply online. But I think we're in a time right now, which hasn't been like the last decade, where suddenly we're running into all sorts of unexpected barriers. The automotive industry has been dealing with the silicon crisis for the last two years. And who would have thought a few years ago that making chips cheaply and reliably and supplying them to the automotive value chain would limit the rate at which you could manufacture vehicles. So I, I think there's a lot of complexity in supply chains and there's a lot of things that are dependencies in scaling up something like this. And I think also in some sense, we just hope and really want in which electric vehicles replace cars because they're very appealing in lots of ways. They're quiet, they're clean, they seem really good. And there's this desire for this good thing to come in and replace the bad thing, which is polluting cars. Yeah, the lens of good and bad, I think, is it definitely feels appropriate. Like, in some ways, the Hummer EV being touted by Biden driving it around, it just feels so ironic because this is the administration whose secretary for the Department of Transportation has made like large vehicles and the danger they pose to pedestrians a real topic, which I think is great. But there's this ironic sort of second impulse to suddenly deify any electric vehicle, including these monstrous ones that are created that are, as you call them, battery sponges. Yeah, and then you've got like the flip side of this, I don't know if you saw Trump's weird rant about electric vehicles with a friend trying to get from, I think it was Kentucky to, to D.C. and having to charge lots of times. And that was a surprising problem. But I think everything in America becomes very polarized. And yet the political system is built on coalitions that aren't fully coherent. So you've got all this dissonance in how people think about things and form their identities, etc. Yeah, it's this weird thing that's feeding into the weird flow of American new cycle and politicization, et cetera, that's in the background here. But I think when you look at the policy that's being implemented, it's it's on the surface appealing to people that you should have subsidies for electric vehicles. But the downstream complexity of that 
is that what's actually being funded is the wrong kind of vehicle. And the opportunity to change things that we have right now is being squandered by a policy and strategy that misses the point. Given that we're running into these huge cost curves and it looks like battery electric is way more challenging to scale than, I don't know if I should say originally thought, than originally dreamed, how realistic is it to start saying that the energy transition cannot be as utopian as we politically want it to be. All the politicians in the US are talking about a Green New Deal and it's jobs creation and essentially saying, look, we can make this transition with no real hit to our quality of life. Could it be that we're now beginning to see that getting off of fossil fuels will in the short run actually hit quality of life. And quality is a complicated term here, but it will make things more expensive in the short run, at least to do them the way we've always done. Yeah, maybe this is a kind of techno-utopianism where we think bringing new technology is going to bring better quality of life, etc. And electric vehicles are the next thing, and therefore accelerating their arrival is going to lead to good things faster. It's just with manufacturing, with Things like transportation, we're really constrained by the realities of manufacturing and raw material inputs. And what it seems like right now is we just don't have enough of that coming online fast enough. And prices can help shift that. And Prices are going up, so maybe more supply will come online. But there's a lot of concentration that really complicates that. And then if you look at the grid side, the grid is just already strained. Texas had this cold snap and then suddenly people didn't have power for days. And California had a heat wave recently and there may, might be more of these heat waves in the future and the grid almost shut down over that as well. So if you're going to add a whole lot of Hummer EVs or big fat electric vehicles, which is effectively what's being subsidized right now, that's also going to put a lot of strain on the grid. Yeah, I also feel like I'm very deep in battery electric world on my LinkedIn because all I see are people dismissing hydrogen and they'll bring up announcements where Toyota, hydrogen is a lot of the Asian OEMs are more keen on that. Although you've seen BMW make some announcements as well and people just trash them. They're like, you're behind the curve. It's all about BEV. But I think that the kind of walls that batteries are hitting today could indicate that even if whether they were made erroneously before or they were actually defensive moves, investing in alternative energies isn't necessarily bad and that the original oil and gas companies used to always say the future will be a rainbow of energy sources. That sounded more like marketing term terminology than anything, but in fact, it could just be the case that fossil fuels were this magical thing that when they go away, no one silver bullet can really replace them in the short run. Okay, moving on to the next section. Prescott, you picked a fight with Adam Neumann this week. Adam Newman. We actually did not pick a fight with him. But I think anytime him or his, he or his companies are introduced, there's a bit of a dramatic intro. Yeah, Flo was dominating the headlines, mostly because people were just surprised by the whole transaction. And that was all anyone talked about. But we thought Flo was interesting because, one... I think you and I both are in the demographic for whom that type of apartment living product appeals or to whom that apartment living product appeals. And when I moved to San Francisco, I lived in a similar type of building. It's definitely the biggest real estate move. I remember I, I remember when you lived in that building, 
there were several people that died outside. Maybe that's not part of the vision of flow, but it yeah, was part of the experience I mean, in San Francisco. It's it's part of the vision of Soma. There were <laughs> un- uh, there were unfortunately two people that I two people that I saw being taken away by I would assume coroners, and then a the third I heard about. Yeah, Soma hit really badly. But the crazy part of the San Francisco lifestyle is that you've got these young sort of tech professionals paying two thousand to four thousand dollars a month to live in an area where you just have a crazy situation with fentanyl happening but it's not just san francisco and i'm not talking about the opioid crisis <laughs> it's not just san francisco like all over the states you have these basically managed ready to move in furnished apartment buildings that are cool and they've got an app and you've got a shared living space and sometimes you've got a movie theater and a gym and a pool and these types of buildings have just come to dominate like urban spaces throughout the united states and so we weren't surprised, I wasn't surprised to see Flo moving into the space. This was really what WeWork was doing with WeLive. But what we were surprised by was like, in fact, the opposite is really potentially a bigger thing. And the opposite is millennials are leaving cities. Not universally, but there are a lot of millennials that are now becoming suburbanites. So have you noticed this like amongst your friends? As people get older, they tend to move to the suburbs in America anyway but is there anything special that's happening yet other than this kind of classic american trend i've got like one of my best friends from college now lives in a suburb and is married and like that's like classic pattern for americans they own cars they do all the things that americans do that used to be what made the millennial generation so weird i think that demographers would say a lot of millennials weren't buying homes in suburbs they were staying renters they weren't buying cars. They definitely didn't have two cars. And that's the center of a fierce debate as well. Like, why were millennials not following their parents to go move to the suburbs? And a lot of people are just saying, hey, it's it, it's just a total cost of living. And people were forced into a rental for life situation because they were servicing huge student debt. But putting that aside... But, but originally in like 2008... Millennials were following their parents to the suburbs literally by moving back in with them. I think that was also a kind of phase in the history of kind of millennial demographic trends. Yeah, and that, that definitely spurred like dozens and dozens of stories where a reporter would interview parents who were lamenting why their like 30-year-old son was living in their basement. It does appear the generation has grown up and the big move is now that millennials are like buying a lot of homes in the suburbs and they're buying cars, they're moving out there. But was this gonna happen anyway? It was like something changed. Was COVID like a shock that shifted people's behaviors or was this just like a delayed maturation like everything else that millennials do? How did you guess? COVID was the shock. So we dive into two things. We look at transportation choices. Basically everyone bought a car in COVID. There was this moment where de Blasio told New Yorkers, do not buy a car. You should take transit, et cetera, like COVID will will blow over. But there was some crazy stat that car ownership went up by 50% in New York City. And so all these people suddenly have a car and now they don't have anywhere to park it. There's like almost absurd sounding stories of people saying they just cannot find parking in New York City. They're missing work because they can't find parking. So all these people are now suddenly saying, maybe I should just move out into the suburbs, which if you think about it is very weird consumer psychology. Like you bought a car and now that you have a car, it's going to change the decision you make. Now you need to buy a new home. (laughs) You can't get rid of your car. You have to buy a new home. 
but that's how consumers think in the United States. Plus, everyone's working uh, just, from home, right? So you don't have to go into the office so much. And I, it just makes more sense to be, you don't have to be co-located with wherever headquarters is. All of this results in just this suburbanification of the millennial generation. And I'm not saying that flow makes no sense. Like obviously urban real estate, it's not like everyone's leaving cities. That's definitely not the case, but a surprising number of millennials are now joining their parents in the suburbs. It's funny that it's called flow though, because the flow is from cities to the suburbs. Even the the point of flow is to be a flow within cities or whatever, I don't know. I feel like we still don't actually know what this company's doing. But something I think we do know a little bit about is how suburbs work since they've been around for a while. I think as mobility investors, we have frequently made the mistake of thinking about mobility from the lens of urban spaces only. And I think that we're good at broadening our lens, but many people think of new mobility as highly urban. Ride hailing works better in cities than rural areas, and delivery should work better when you have population density. And all of these mobility innovations have long been seen as like urban innovations. So I think this millennial move to the suburbs has some people thinking that, okay, what does this mean that it's the end of shared services? Everyone is buying a car, that's where they're going to the suburbs. So like the whole shared economy, is that going to take a hit? And over the past few months, you and I have bounced ideas back and forth and come across a number of trends that we think really show that's not the case that new mobility has to be tied to urban in, to urban environments and that there are actually a lot of interesting businesses that work really well in the suburbs. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about autonomous vehicles and the challenges Cruise, for instance, has had in San Francisco. And cities are quite hard as a place to launch autonomous vehicle services for all the reasons that Cruise is, has struggled to launch and scale its service. And Waymo's actually, interestingly, been operating in Chandler in Arizona for a year or something like that with, a, with an autonomous vehicle service. Neuro, that delivery robotics autonomous vehicle company, is also focused on suburbs for the most part. So it's interesting to see these autonomous vehicle pl- projects playing out in the suburbs. I actually think Waymo's been in Chandler slash Phoenix, Arizona for almost two years, if not longer. And I think the reason everyone thinks they're going there is because it's just easier. It's obviously suburban roads tend to be a little bit less complicated than like Manhattan or San Francisco. But I actually think robo taxis just make so much sense for the suburbs. They actually make more sense for the suburbs in my view than they do for cities. And what I mean is in suburbs, it's low density transit frequently doesn't really exist because you have low population density. And so in lieu of having a working bus system, people just drive everywhere. And robo taxis are like a one-for-one replacement of driving, except that they should be better. So everything that's currently happening in suburbs could be replaced with a shared robo taxi service. And it could just be better. Not quite that, but that's one vision. And in contrast, robo taxis have always been con- controversial in cities because, like, ride hailing already exists in cities. And even if it's a big business, like Uber makes a lot of money in cities, it is an urban type of company. It's not necessarily the case that you can replace all trips with ride hail whether it's human-driven or robo-taxi-driven, just because of, like, geometry. There are too many people trying to move places. You can't put them all in cars. So robo-taxi services might be a better version of taxis, 
But I don't think that they're ever going to be a complete solution by any means in cities. Like you're going to still have to have mass transportation just because you have too many people moving in too small of a space. So robo taxis make a lot of sense for the suburbs and can be a pretty overwhelming type of solution for suburbs. Whereas I think they'll always be just one of many kind of niche, not niche, but one of many high end options for trips where you really want to be in a private vehicle in cities. And it's interesting that the vehicle, the first real kind of platform that Waymo launched on was a minivan. Minivans are basically the indigenous species of suburbs, basically powered by soccer moms moving families around. So it's interesting that's the form factor that Waymo, in a meaningful sense, has been building on top of. So robotaxis, like, it seems to make sense for them to work in the suburbs because Basically, what they're doing is they're replacing cars. They're just cars that drive themselves. But I think what's also interesting is that DoorDash as a company has really succeeded by focusing on the suburbs. And the companies like Via that launch shared car pooling type services, shared van services, that also seem to work relatively well in medium density environments. And I think that it's important to note that like suburbs aren't exurbs, right? Like they're not rural or super low density. They're just much lower density than cities, which is part of their appeal. But they're also proximate to a lot of things that people are going to and excited to live in the vicinity of like good schools or movie theaters or malls, etc. Yeah, you brought a via. I actually think that's probably a great example of where I'm wrong about transit in suburbs. When I said earlier that transit has failed in suburbs, I guess I'm talking about like the traditional fixed route buses or trains where you just don't have enough people to justify that kind of route. But to your point, these new types of neo-transit that we've written about in the past, those things can actually be really good solutions for suburbs. And frequently, they're going to be through private-public partnerships or some sort of like delivery system that allows startups to get involved. You've seen, I think we've seen like more than 15 companies in that space, Via being definitely one of the biggest. What's the point of talking about all this stuff? Obviously, we wanted to get a knock-in on Flow, but I think what's interesting about this is you might think of suburbs as boring from a mobility innovation perspective, but I think there might be unique opportunities to build businesses that are focused on solutions specific to the suburbs. And there might be natural advantages in the suburbs to certain kinds of businesses. One reason DoorDash has been successful focusing on the suburbs is wallet spend amongst families that live in the suburbs is just much higher than people in the cities. People in cities are often living by themselves. They're not ordering dinner for a whole family. It's also much easier to drop off the food or get get around suburbs, finding the house, it's much easier because the number is marked, whereas in cities, you might have to go into a building up an elevator, you might have to uh, an apartment building with a weird number. There are all sorts of things that unexpectedly might work better in suburbs if you have the right business model or strategy. How excited should we be about that? Yeah, and there's this whole other area we just don't even talk that much about anymore, but the traditional automotive innovation, right? Like level three driving and hands off, eyes off, all these things, they're not necessarily startup opportunities. I think it's mostly Mobileye and those types of companies working with automotive companies. But if people are buying cars and moving to suburbs, there's going to be lots of business opportunities to give them convenience and services. New mobility is not just something that has to live only in cities. So suburbs are good? No, I don't think suburbs are good. 
having grown up in one in Florida as a child, <laughs> I can tell you suburbs are miserable as a child. I think, well, anyway, we don't have to get into this, but we're definitely urbanites. But yes, there are business opportunities to be had in the suburbs. This has been another Red Blue audio cast. I hope you enjoyed. You can check out our newsletter at news.red.blue and we'd love to hear from you. So send us emails or tweet at us, etc. Till next time, take care.